You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll hear from Paris and ask what former President Nicolas Sarkozy is up to as he plots his political comeback. But we begin in New York, where more than 120 world leaders are meeting to discuss climate change. The meeting was convened by United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, and it follows demonstrations this week in more than 2,000 locations around the world, calling for urgent action on climate change. The guest list of the New York summit is impressive, including President Barack Obama, and with added star power from its opening speaker, actor Leonardo DiCaprio. But the leaders of China and India, with a combined population of two and a half billion, a third of the world's total, are staying away. And the political reality has often got in the way of effective action against climate change in the past. So will this time be different? Our environment editor, Frank MacDonald, is in New York and he joins me now. Frank, you were writing in the Irish Times this week that the last time that so many leaders got together to talk about climate change, it was a disaster. Well, indeed it was. Uh, I, I, I will remember the uh, the Copenhagen Climate Summit in 2009, where indeed more than 120 uh, world leaders uh, turned up for that. Um, and the idea was that they would, you know, in effect, give their imprimatur to all of the work that had been going on behind the scenes by the negotiators over the over the uh, the the, uh, the years. Because, of course, let's not forget that these UN negotiations have been going on now since. 1995, which is, um, you know, the guts of 20 years ago. Um, so um, it was a debacle because uh, the world leaders were not well, well briefed. Um, some of them then got together and did a little side deal. Uh, that included China, the United States, uh, South Africa, um, and uh, India, and Brazil. And um, and the thing ended in a disaster, really, um, where, where, which set back the, the, the cause rather than advanced it. So I think what is happening on this occasion is that, you know, uh, the negotiators in general have set uh, Paris, the climate conference in Paris in uh, at the end of 2015, as the deadline for reaching an international accord on the whole issue of what we're going to do to deal with climate change. And that is a firm deadline. So what Ban Ki-moon was trying to do uh, with this summit today was to, in effect, inject further impetus into the process and make sure that the world leaders themselves, the prime ministers, the presidents, the others who ultimately will make decisions, um, that they're clued in as to what's going on and what the issues are. And so that, you know, when it comes to Paris in, in 2015, that it isn't going to be uh, another repeat of, uh, of another disaster in the making. And what are they actually hoping to achieve in concrete terms in Paris in 2015? Well, essentially what, what, what is on the agenda really is to, to uh, chart a course that will substantially reduce the greenhouse gas emissions that scientists say are, co- are causing climate change. And that is something that um, is an urgent priority. And it's already happening to some extent. I mean, I know the current level of greenhouse gas emissions are at a record high uh, of, I think, I, I can't remember the figure, I think it's over 31 billion um, tonnes per annum, etc. So we have to work to reduce that, uh, to reduce that figure. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, the temperature will continue going up. And don't forget that it's already been agreed 
that we will try our utmost to hold the increase in world, uh, in average global surface temperatures uh, to a maximum of two degrees um, Celsius. And, you know, two degrees Celsius doesn't sound like much, but in fact, it would fundamentally change uh, the way we live today, um, um, particularly in uh, already warmer parts of the world that would get uh, extremely hot and practically uninhabitable. So, and also there is this whole issue of, of uh, the polar ice caps and melting, melting ice and so on and rising sea levels threatening the, the actual existence of many of the small island states, um, like the Maldives, for example, or the Marshall Islands or whatever. And they're going to be represented here today pleading for much stronger action uh, than, than is currently being taken. Uh, but I think things are moving in the right direction now. There's a much greater awareness of it. And, and I was here for the demonstration on, on Sunday. And I tell you this, it took hours hours, literally, to pass down 6th Avenue uh, from Columbus Circle to the High Line Park on the, on the, uh, the, west, the lower west side. And I want you to, know, Frank, I mean, to ask you about that. I mean, just because, I mean, as you say, that was a huge demonstration in New York, more than 300,000 people, uh, which yes. even in a city like New York is a very, very impressive number. But you also Indeed had these large demonstrations all over the world. And I wonder, do you get the sense there in New York when you talk to the delegates at this conference, do you get a sense that this that there is a new kind of public awareness about the urgency of this problem. Yes, I do, uh, I do. But but also there there is, you know, the, there is the most recent uh, reports uh, that were done by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which represents the consensus view of scientists worldwide, um, and that those reports, the most recent assessment, uh, clearly shows, um, you know, that 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 climate change is a reality. It's already happening, and and unless we start dealing with that as a, a you know a central fact, uh, then um, it's going to overtake us. So you know there isn't that much time left. I mean, we have to start turning things around within the next few years um, to start bringing down uh, the level of carbon pollution in the atmosphere, uh, and and uh, in the hope of achieving the already stated goal of limiting the maximum uh, temperature rise to two degrees Celsius, beyond which it would become dangerous. Frank, you mentioned that this uh, conversation or these summits have been going on for 20 years now almost. And Angela Merkel chaired the first one in Berlin in 1995, uh, and I was at that too, and, and she did a very good job uh, at it. She was environment um, minister at that stage. She was environment been. minister of the, of the federal German government yeah. at the time, yeah. And uh, but uh, what I, but one of the things that seems to have happened in those intervening years is that every time that there appears to be a push for action, uh, because this is a sorry is, is viewed as a kind of a long term problem in the future, uh, yeah. immediate economic imperatives tend to intervene. So people will say, "Well, look, we can't afford to do that now. We certainly will do it at some stage, but right now we've got other priorities, which is we've got to get the economy going, and that means cheap energy." Uh, from existing forms. Yes, but I mean, you know, this was always the issue uh, in, since the financial crash um, uh, in 2008. Uh, this was always the issue. Is, the, uh, is economic recovery 
going to be based on business as usual as it had been in the past, or was it going to go for a, a, a you know a greener tinge uh, even? And I mean, like I don't think it, 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 there's anybody who can who can't see that it obviously makes sense, you know, to save energy, to um, you know have better insulation for buildings, you know, there's all sorts of measures that are win-win uh, scenarios uh, for us, and and energy conservation is one of the principal. Uh, ones. And I mean, I'm talking to you from a city which which guzzles air conditioning uh, to beat the band. And, and you know, in fairness to them, in, in the humid uh, uh, heat of, of the summer, uh, um, um, July and August in particular, you couldn't blame them in a way. Um, but, you know, energy conservation is one of the main planks of, of, of the thing. And that creates jobs. Don't forget, you know, people are needed to install, um, you know, uh, to make uh, houses more energy efficient and improve their energy performance and all the rest of it. And that is something that the Irish government, uh, bizarrely, has been cutting back on programs uh, to encourage uh, energy conservation in the domestic sector. Uh, And that is something that Enda Kenny and his uh, colleagues are going to have to address. Uh, in the next short while, because otherwise uh, we're, 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 we're just not playing ball, whatever he says. And the other big challenge for Ireland is agriculture? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, agriculture accounts for a very large proportion of Ireland's total greenhouse gas emissions. And in fact, because of the strength of the agriculture sector in Ireland... Uh, our greenhouse gas emissions per capita are are really quite high by European standards. Uh, that's because you have to factor in uh, the 11 million cattle or whatever, um, plus all the pigs and sheep and so on and so forth. And what uh, what I think is needed there is is um, what's what's now become known as climate smart agriculture. In other words, um, you know, using less nitrogen fertilizer, using, um, you know, trying to make farming more environmentally friendly, um, uh, causing less pollution, um, putting cattle on a different diet, perhaps, um, uh, things like that. And that is something that, that is already happening and will happen to a much greater extent as time goes on. So finally, Frank, as you said, the uh, the prize is a deal at next year's uh, conference in Paris. If we look ahead to the period between now and then, could you identify what you think are the biggest potential stumbling blocks and also what are going to be the signs over the next few months that we're on the right path to actually get a deal in Paris? Well, I mean, uh, since 1995, the United Nations has been holding annual climate conferences. And uh, these are... the these are the, the the settings at which the negotiations take place. Uh, and this year's annual conference is being held in Lima, in Peru, uh, in uh, late November, early December. And that is expected to produce a, a draft negotiating text uh, for a final agreement in Paris uh, uh, the following year. And uh, the main stumbling blocks, I suppose, at the moment are uh, that, you know, that there, money is a big one. Um, I mean, Hillary Clinton, I remember in Copenhagen, you know, she flew in and promised that, you know, developed countries were going to ramp up uh, a total amount of aid of something of the order of 100 billion a year in U.S. dollars uh, by 2020. And really, there's been very little sign that that money is going to emerge. Um, and, And therefore... 
developing countries, the poorer developing countries in particular, can turn around then and accuse their richer uh, friends, uh, or uh, uh, like the, the big uh, countries like the United States and the European Union, member states and so on, Japan, Australia, etc., uh, of bad faith, you know, that there has to be money on the table. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you know, the, the most, the bizarre thing is about climate change, of course, is that the that the, the people who've been least responsible for causing it historically uh, since the Industrial Revolution, um, uh, really for the, over the last 200 years or so, uh, that they're, they're the ones who are going to suffer the most. And, you know, in order to try and help them, I think the rich countries of the world really need to uh, step up to the plate with real money. And I think that that is something that's going to be a make or break thing in relation to whether a deal is reached in Paris. And it's going to be the principal one. Frank MacDonald in New York, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. Napoleon Bonaparte did it and Charles de Gaulle did it, but in the past two centuries, no other French leader has successfully made a comeback. Former President Nicolas Sarkozy, who was booted out of office two years ago, is hoping to change that. And this week, he took his first step on what he hopes is the road back to the Elysee, announcing that he'll seek the leadership of his centre-right party, the UMP. Declaring that he had no option but to enter the fray, he said that France must be saved from a choice between the humiliating spectacle of François Hollande's economic mismanagement and the total isolation offered by Marine Le Pen, the leader of the far-right National Front. Our Paris correspondent, Lara Marlowe, has been following Mr Sarkozy's fortunes for many years, and she joins me now. Lara, what is he up to? He's up to the same thing that he was always up to. He wants power. He wants all power as soon as possible for himself, uh, and and that's what he's doing. He'd said last year that he wasn't going to get involved in what he called little politics anymore. Uh, in fact, some people like Bernadette Chirac, who's a great admirer of his, say that, that seeking the party leadership, which he had before he was president the last time, is actually beneath him, that this is a step down for him. But he, he feels he has to run the party to control the primaries next year to ensure that he is the right candidate for the presidential election in 2017. Um, It's kind of ironic. François Hollande defeated Sarkozy in 2012 because Sarkozy was so incredibly unpopular. And now Sarkozy is making exactly the same bet that he can defeat Hollande because Hollande is so unpopular. Hollande is even more unpopular than Sarkozy was when he was in office. But I must say it will be a tragedy for France if the French people have to choose yet again between Nicolas Sarkozy and François Hollande in 2017. Well, of course, there is another element in the choice and uh, as I mentioned, Sarkozy identified this unappetizing choice between Hollande and Marine Le Pen. Mm-hmm. And is, does she stand to benefit from a contest like this one? Absolutely. I mean, the, all the opinion polls at the moment show that if it was a three-way contest, uh, certainly in the first round, Marine Le Pen would beat Hollande, and we would see a Sarkozy-Le Pen runoff uh, in, in, in the second round. Uh, now, Alain Juppé, who's, who's Sarkozy's main rival in, in the mainstream right, uh, actually scores higher in polls than Sarkozy does, so he, could, he would defeat Le Pen. But the polls now are showing that either Sarkozy or 
or uh, Juppé would, would defeat Marine Le Pen in the runoff. So, as you say, as you, you mentioned Juppé, uh, presumably Sarkozy is not going to have a clear run at the leadership of the centre-right if he goes for it. It's hard to say. I mean, already a lot of people who had more or less turned against him, people like um, uh, Copé, Jean-François Copé, uh, Jean-Pierre Raffarin, Nathalie Kosciusko-Morizet, these are all heavyweights on the right. Uh, they had, had distanced themselves from Sarkozy, but since he started making all these noises about a comeback, um, they're, they're, coming, they're rallying to him. And I think it's that the, 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 the center-right, the UMP, is really uh, in bits at the moment. Uh, they, have, they have a huge financial scandal called Big Million about uh, party financing. And there's no real leadership there. And, and Sarkozy uh, thinks he can step into the void and, and take over. And it just maybe I was very surprised, actually, having seen him on television on Sunday night. A poll yesterday showed that a very small majority of French people actually thought he, he made a good performance on Sunday night. Um, in fact, I was sitting next to a couple of old ladies in a restaurant in a prosperous part of Paris yesterday, and they were saying, oh, what did you think of him? I thought he was great. Um, do you think he can do it? Can he come back? Yes, I think so. What do you think? And um, so this is the sort of thing one is hearing. I, I think anything is possible in this country, in part because of what you mentioned, this traditional belief in a providential man, a savior who will come and, and put order in, into things and, and, you know, whip the country into shape. And that's what Sarkozy promised to do in 2007, and that's, not, that's what he's promising to do again. And people have to seem to have very short memories because his record shows that unemployment went up, he increased taxes by 28 billion euro, um, the industrial production collapsed under him, and, you know, he didn't, he didn't make the reforms that he said he was going to make, and yet a lot of people are willing to consider taking him back. But on the other hand, you mentioned the providential man, and I mentioned Napoleon Bonaparte and Charles de Gaulle, the only two previous French heads of state that have made a comeback. And whatever you think about them, they were pretty exceptional in one way or another. Uh, mm. Does Sarkozy... Well, uh, Napoleon finished badly. Um, de Gaulle was basically voted out of office on a, on a referendum and, and went off to Ireland to, to brood. Um, there was a third man who's mentioned as well, which is Maréchal Pétain, Philippe Pétain who was the, the savior of Verdun in the First World War. And when he came back uh, under the German occupation to, to, you know, lead a semblance of a French government, a lot of people thought, ah, fantastic, you know, Pétain will, will uh, stand up to the Germans. But he also finished in, in total disgrace, more, more so, much more so than, than Napoleon or, or de Gaulle. Um, so the, the record actually isn't very good. Um, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing tried to make a comeback. He uh, regained leadership of his party, which was called the UDF, and he never he wasn't able to do it. Um, at that point, there was a younger, a young Turk named Jacques Chirac, uh, who who had taken the right away from him, basically. So it's it's not at all certain that Sarkozy can pull this off, but he's certainly giving it his best try. Now, the French centre right, every few years, it seems to reform itself and rebrand itself. Mm -hmm. Is there any sign that if Sarkozy does indeed take over the leadership of his party, that he will? Uh, engage in a kind of a repositioning and a rebranding. Oh, 
Well, very much so. I mean, that, that's his whole line now. In the last campaign in 2012, he had an advisor called Patrick Brisson, who comes from the extreme right, who used to uh, edit a magazine called Minute, which was very, very far right. I mean, further right than, than Le Pen. And Brisson tried to make a rapprochement with the National Front. He really thought that Sarkozy could win over all the National Front uh, voters, and it failed. And that's one of the reasons Sarkozy lost the last time. Now, he's realized, he's, he's studied this question a lot over the last two years, and he realized that his swing to the far right um, really put people off. So now he wants to be a moderate, and he wants to be in the center, and he wants there, there are a couple of small center-right parties which are not part of the UMP. He wants to bring them in. So he's saying he's going to have a more moderate line. Part of the problem is he doesn't really have a program or a line. The only idea he has is that he wants to have lots of referenda to let the French people decide themselves, which isn't actually terribly original. And he, he even though he says, you know, I'm the only person who can do this, uh, he's not really telling us what he's going to do. And, uh, of course, all of this is predicated on uh, President Hollande remaining as unpopular as he is. Uh, is that a pretty good bet that he will continue to be unpopular? Uh, I, I fear it is a safe bet, yes. And, and the speculation is that if Sarkozy is able to take over the UMP, that he will sort of uh, position himself as the former president, try to do it from, with auteur, you know, with, with his sort of usual arrogance, and he'll get somebody like Luc Chatel, one of his right-hand men, to, to run the party, and he will be the sort of um, alternative president, and he'll, he'll make a lot of trips abroad and be photographed with Angela Merkel and, and act presidential. So that's, that's his plan. He wants to n change the name of a party. He even wants to move it, its headquarters. He wants everybody to forget that he bankrupted this party. Um, l last summer, the members of the UMP had to raise 11 million uh, euro just to bail out, just to pay off the, the, the most urgent debts. They still owe another 40 or 50 million. Um, and these are debts that were incurred in Sarkozy's uh, last presidential campaign. Uh, so you know, people, some people remember that and the others who've forgotten it probably ought to remember it. Uh, so finally, Lara, you don't like the idea of this uh, choice between Hollande and Sarkozy. Do you think that's what we're going to get? Uh, I certainly hope not. I think there are other people who are promising. I think Manuel Valls has a lot more charisma. He's a better orator um, than, than François Hollande on the left. I think on the right, Alain Juppé, who was a prime minister, who was a for very good foreign minister, uh, has a certain amount of prestige. He, at the moment, by the way, is the most popular politician in France. Whether that lasts, we don't know. And Sarkozy's already putting it around, well, Juppé is too old. He'll be 71 by the time of the election and so on. But there are, other, for example, I think a, a Valls-Juppé contest uh, would be very, very interesting indeed. And, and I think it would give France, um, you know, a sense of renewal, a, a sense of choice. Uh, but I think that if you have the same old guys with the same old policies, yet again, I will just reconfirm this, this terrible feeling that France is in a rut, that it's not moving, that it's immobile. Um, and that's, that's really the danger of Sarkozy's comeback. Lara Malo in Paris, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories on irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.